This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope, a reporter at Room Now, coming to you from uh, ACR 2020, the virtual meeting or convergence. I want to talk about what I think is a best in class uh, production that is an oral presentation, number 1508, from uh, Dr. John Hanley's group in Nova Scotia. So it starts to me with a clinical question. When our patient with lupus is saying, I have headache, I'm not thinking clearly, I can't remember my best friend's uh, date of birth, even though I've known her a long time, things like that, they're very nonspecific. I take them seriously, but I don't know what to do about them. To me, this is a game changer abstract. So in 1508 abstract, what they did was they looked at 65 people with SLE, and nine controls. And they were looking at leakage of the blood brain barrier. And they had advanced imaging. And what they found in the lupus patients is that one in four or 25% had significant or clinically relevant blood brain barrier leak leakage with uh, advanced imaging. So one in four patients. And they looked at where this was occurring and it seemed to be all over the place. It wasn't just say uh, a frontal lobe as a for instance. What was really interesting to me was there was no difference in neuropsychiatric events prior uh, to this in those who had blood brain barrier leakage and those who didn't. But you had higher disease activity as lead I of four compared to 2.4 if you had leakage compared to no leakage. What they also went on to do was look at not just the structure as I explained, but function. So there were more cognitive defects in those who had this leakage than those who didn't. What's the take home? Number one, take your patients seriously with SLE when they say they're not thinking right. Number two, more work needs to be done to know how to treat it. I think, though, this will change the way I think about CNS events occurring in lupus. Please follow us at Room Now and enjoy uh, ACR 2020. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting from ACR 2020. And I'm going to talk to you uh, about a study by Dr. Joshua and colleagues, which was prevent, presented on Sunday in plenary session uh, three. And this study was uh, entitled Citrulline Reactive B-cells are present in the lungs of at-risk ORA and early untreated um, ORA. So this is a very important topic. Um, rheumatoid arthritis, as we all know, is an autoimmune condition. Um, and we don't really know um, why or how or where rheumatoid arthritis starts in the body um, and perhaps um, part of the reason why um, we have had some difficulties in treating it is because of that lack of knowledge and what and the lungs have been one of the main focuses um, as a potential trigger site and there's a number of reasons why we think the lungs could be important there's a strong association with rheumatoid arthritis with smoking um, there's a high rate of interstitial lung disease um, as a manifestation of rheumatoid arthritis and ACPAs have been identified in the lungs of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. 
So it was in this setting um, that the authors of this study um, decided quite sensibly uh, to look at people with the earliest stages of rheumatoid arthritis um, and see what they could find in their lungs. So this was a relatively small study. They enrolled 12 patients. They enrolled patients who had seropositive artralgia, so who didn't yet meet the criteria for rheumatoid arthritis, and then patients with early untreated seropositive rheumatoid arthritis and early untreated seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. And with these patients, um, they did a bronchoscopy on all of them and a bronchiolar lavage. So they did a washout of the lungs um, gathered up uh, the cells that are, are in the lungs um, and then sorted these cells. And specifically what they were looking for were B cells and particularly CD19 positive B cells. And they identified these CD19 positive B cells at a significantly higher rate in those who had seropositive artralgia or seropositive rheumatoid arthritis compared to seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. They then went on and looked at what these B cells were doing, and they found that they were making um, pathogenic ACPA. So they identified pathogenic ACPA in these uh, patients who had these CD19 positive B cells. So the implications of this study, um, this supports uh, the theory that the lungs may be a primary site of both initiation and propagation of rheumatoid arthritis. And um, as well as, as giving us knowledge of the pathogenesis, there may be clinically important implications to this. Um, if we want to try and prevent rheumatoid arthritis, um, especially in at-risk people, then it may make sense to focus um, on the lungs and this data supports a strategy uh, like that. So thank you. Follow me um, on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway and tune in to Room Now for more uh, updates from ACR 2020. Hi, ACR Converge. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida. Today, I am honored to be chatting with two of my friends, Drs. Cassie Calabrese from the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Mary Inojos Mamet, PGR5, from Largo Medical Center, also here in Florida on the other coast. Um, she's also the incoming chair of the ACR FIT subcommittee. Guys, thank you for being here today. I really appreciated it. Um, I would just want to talk to you ladies about COVID-19, but more specifically regarding work and work-life balance that you've seen with COVID-19. I'll tell you, the pandemic has definitely changed the way I work. I have even scheduled patients for telehealth visits on days that I wasn't previously in clinic. So just to start us out, how has the pandemic changed your work or your workflow, Cassie? Hi, that's a, a really great question. Like what is not different? since the pandemic started, which feels like a decade ago, but I think a lot has changed. I work at the Cleveland Clinic, so it's a, a large academic medical center, tertiary referral center, and, you know, we were really busy at baseline, and I think the most interesting thing about, you know, rheumatology and COVID is that our patients always need to be seen. You know, we're in an institution with ortho, and you know, they don't need, their patients often can, you know, not come and our patients have chronic medical issues. And so we never really slowed down, but we did a lot of virtual, which I'm, we've 
converted mostly back to in-person, but I'm still finding a lot of patients who are very like, scared and very scared to come into clinic. And I think our patients are like very aware of their, their health issues and, and for that reason are being uber cautious. But I feel like I'm even more busy virtually somehow and have had, I've struggled with balancing. Um, you know, we fortunately didn't get struck down like with pay cuts or anything, but we were asked to work harder um, and more, whether it's adding on patients. Uh, we were given free reign to pick the time some people see patients at six in the morning. Some people see them on the weekends. Some people see them um, at the end of the day after work. So it's been busier in a different way and, and balancing has been a challenge. Well, it's funny that you should bring that up. Mary just had a wonderful lecture. I mean, and Mary, tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, so um, I had the opportunity to moderate a lecture for the ACR Convergence yesterday. Um, work-life balance, and it was hosted by Dr. Leanne Gensler. It was really interesting. Um, I feel like there was quite a few um, really good points, but you know, there's at least three that really were take home for me, and not necessarily in COVID because even before COVID, work-life balance is very challenging. And you know, one of the biggest things that you know, as a fellow in training for me, um, was that everybody has their own path, and really emphasized and you know, making sure that what you're doing is making you happy. And as long as you're happy, that path that you're taking is the correct one. Um, you know, there was another point that she made that really resonated with me. And that was not to hold others to your own expectations that you hold yourself to. And I think that that's really important um, in just recognizing and respecting everybody else's expectations and their own paths as well. And then the third big one was, it's okay to say no. And I think that that's important, and especially important in the COVID era, um, as we're trying to figure out how to do things because there's no right answer at this time. And as a fellow in training too, you want to say yes to all these opportunities that you have that will open other doors for you. But she made a really good point in regards to saying no also means that you're allowing for other opportunities, whether that's at home, or at work, but you know, you're allotting that time to something else that makes you happy. I think Cassie and I can say one quick thing about that. That's not just for fellows. Saying yes. I was just gonna say that. I'm glad that you did. That doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't. No. I think it's harder earlier when we're younger in our careers, but that has been a challenge with me um, for me since day one. And getting you know asked to do so many things or to help with so many things can be you know exciting and and challenging and you want to say yes to everything but like the art is actually learning which ones to say yes to and what to say no to has that been has that been really I'm sure that's been difficult with your expertise in infectious disease and rheumatology this year it's been a lot it's been a lot of stuff <laughs> been and it's all you know so exciting and and for a while I tried to do everything and about like two months ago I had to kind of re re take another look at what I was like doing with myself and and my time and and energy and and it's it's been it's been very good but that can be really hard well do you have any tips that you learned two months ago what's your secret I don't know how to do this yet <laughs> when you're not sleeping <laughs> yeah. take, a, take a moment and um it's all important you know things you say yes to range 
Um, you know, things you get asked to do range from, you know, patient care things to, you know, writing things, book chapters, things that are easier and harder, um, you know, getting asked to write like a book chapter in the midst of all of this, which is, if you have not learned, one of the most difficult things to do and time consuming things and kind of um, like lesser rewarding things, um, but also very intellectually stimulating. And so putting a higher priority, you know, to COVID related things and always patient care related things and, you know, favors, but um, it's still a challenge and a work in progress and I welcome any tips. Oh yeah, me too. Well, Mary, do you have any <laughs> tips for fellows? Do you have yeah. any tips for attendings? I think it's important right now, right? We're all shifting gears and we've had to learn quickly and um, adapt, which is something that we are pretty used to in rheumatology, but as human nature, we don't want to adapt quickly. <laughs> That's not what we do. So. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, I would just kind of echo what Dr. Calabrese said, and that's triaging and, you know, picking and choosing those things that, um, the time may be more appropriate for your schedule while you're still finding the balance for additional activities and in your personal life as well. I think that's really important. I thought of a super good quick example of I took like a vacation day a couple of weeks from now. It's like one day. I was like, I need this day. And then just yesterday I got asked to do something like super cool, like COVID related that falls on that day. And I was like, like I really should do this but I was like I'm not gonna do this like no this is my day I wasn't supposed to do anything on this day and I was proud of myself for saying no well lead by example that's Mary <laughs> has it changed a lot from when being a PGY4 now to a PGY5 with the pandemic what are you guys seeing so that's a really good question. I don't think, you know, necessarily going from PGY4 to 5, I've seen differences. It's a nice flow and transition in fellowship. But in regards to education, you know, COVID ha has made a difference. And um, I can't speak for all the fellowships around the country because everybody's had a different experience. But there does seem to be a consensus in regards to concern about education. Are we seeing enough patients still? Are we doing enough physical exams, getting enough procedures? Um, a lot of fellows have also had research projects put on hold. So those are some real concerns. But, you know, I think what's really cool is the ACR is recognizing this. And, you know, one of the big focus is for them is something that they can make a great impact on, and that is the education part. So there's been um, these viral series lectures going on. Um, a big one was um, the VIP lecture series that went on through um, July and August. And I know that there is some coming up here in the next half of the academic year. I'm not sure how much I can say about that at this time, but you know, it's really there for the fellows and it's there to help um, provide those resources and maybe some gaps that we have. And it's great that, you know, everything's online and it's available still today. Well, guys, thank you for this very short period of time. What I've learned from us is that we're pretty ambitious. We're still young. We have problems saying no. 
Um, but overall that the ACR has some really great options for fellows for support. And as Cassie has said, we still advocate for our patients and we need to ad advocate and educate ourselves. So thank you so much for being here. Any last comments, thoughts? Mary, go first. Yes, thank you. Um, I do want to share that we did the ACR FIT subcommittee did do a survey of fellows in regards to the COVID impact. And that was back in the spring. We're going to be talking about that um, as kind of a town hall, but it's going to be during our FIT reception. That's um, tomorrow night, um, Monday the 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I just want, you know, the fellows to know that that's available. And we'll talk about the resources that, you know, some of our colleagues have been using to help cope with some of the difficulties. Excellent. Cassie, any last thoughts? I think I'll say, just remember to take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself and reserve even just a little time for yourself so that you can be there for your patients and, and your family. Guys, that's, I mean, that's wonderful. That's what we all need to be doing. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for being here. Stay safe and healthy. And for this and more information, check us out at roomnow.com. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting for Room Now from ACR 2020. Today, I'll be giving you an update on myositis, in particular, the results of the Progress in Dermatomyositis or ProDerm study, abstract number 0995, which was presented by Professor Rohit Agarwal during the abstract session. This trial investigated the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of IVIG in patients with dermatomyositis. This study is a phase three randomized placebo-controlled trial that enrolled 95 adult DM patients with active disease currently on standard immunosuppression or previously failed or intolerant to standard immunosuppression had a manual muscle test score of less than 142 over 150 with at least two abnormal core set measures. Patients were stratified into mild, moderate, or severe disease. The study was divided into two periods. The first period, patients were randomized to IVIG 2 gram per kilogram every four weeks or placebo every four weeks up to week 16 followed by an open-label extension period of up for up to week 40. For stable patients, there was an option to decrease the dose of IVIG to 1 gram per kilogram every week at week 24. And patients with confirmed deterioration anytime from week 8 to week 16 can be switched to an alternate treatment group. The trial met its primary endpoint which was the proportion of responders at week 16 who had a total improvement score or TIS of more than 20 points. For a brief background, the TIS is a validated response criteria for both DM and PM based on six core set measures, including manual muscle testing, physician and patient global assessments, HAC, muscle enzymes, and extramuscular disease activity. So going back to the results, 
there was a statistically significant proportion of patients who had minimal improvement, this of less than 20 points, versus placebo at week 16. Similar results were also found for the proportion of responders who at least had moderate or major improvement. IVIG response was maintained for all efficacy endpoints through week 40, and similar response rates were seen after switching to IVIG from placebo. The mean TIS was also significantly higher in the IVIG groups. 62 patients developed treatment emergent adverse events, most common of which were headache, pyrexia, and nausea. Serious PEAEs were similar in both treatment groups, with thromboembolic events being the most common. In conclusion, the ProDerm study showed the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of 10% IVIG or 10% octagam in patients with dermatomyositis. What's my take on this? The results are really good. Probably not yet my first line agent for dermatomyositis, but definitely an alternative option for patients refractory to treatment or those with contraindications to standard immunosuppressive therapies. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to Room Now for more videos and reports. Thank you. Hi, this is Eric Ruderman from Northwestern University in Chicago, coming to you again from ACR Convergence 2020, uh, bringing you some uh, discussion through Room Now. Um, in this meeting, like a lot of other meetings lately, there's been a tremendous interest in the psoriatic arthritis space on measuring disease activity. Uh, psoriatic arthritis, more so, I think, than rheumatoid arthritis, is a bit of a challenging disease because there's so many domains of disease activity and it makes it hard in an individual patient to figure out what's gonna drive your treatment choices. If all treatments were equally effective for all the different domains of, of involvement, it wouldn't matter, but that actually is not the case. And as we get new therapies, uh, it's becoming increasingly important to sort through all of that so we can understand what's the right treatment for the right patient. Um, that comes up in uh, guidelines uh, that's come up in the past in the GRAPA guidelines, and it's part of the discussion as the uh, next iteration of the GRAPA guidelines are uh, going uh, through the process right now. And one of the challenges is that there are a number of different um, composite outcomes in psoriatic arthritis, and yet it's not clear which one gets the information that we really need in an individual case to take care of our patients. So sort of stepping back, um, you know, originally psoriatic arthritis trials used uh, outcomes that were sort of poached from rheumatoid arthritis, ACR response, DASH response, and in fact, they still do. But it was recognized fairly early that they don't always capture the full spectrum of psoriatic disease, that patients with enthesitis, for example, may not have a very high score on a DASH score if it's focusing specifically on synovitis. And none of those uh, account for skin disease or nail disease. Uh, so one of the challenges has been to develop a composite that addresses all those things, and yet does so in a way that's applicable to individual patients. Uh, 
There are a number of these, the, the DAPSA and the PASDAS. And most recently, I think people have focused on a composite that is something akin to a, a clinical uh, remission, basically. Um, and, and what's driving that I, in many ways, I think, is the treat to target concept, which you know, initiated in rheumatology, in rheumatoid arthritis, and is now moving into the spinal arthritis arena. And the idea being that if you have a patient with active disease, you continue to monitor their disease activity uh, and then either change therapy or escalate therapy if they haven't achieved uh, a target. Now that's, um, I wouldn't say easy to do, but easier to do in rheumatoid arthritis when you have a very clear cut target. It's either remission or low disease. There's some controversy over which, you know, which uh, remission uh, diagnosis you use, but it's the same idea because it really focuses on joint disease. In psoriatic arthritis, it, it becomes a little bit more complicated. So uh, an outcome like the MDA, minimal disease activity, which takes into account joints and skin and enthesitis and dactylitis and pain and all the different elements of disease uh, seems on the surface um, preferable. The problem is that the impact on an individual patient may differ. So some people are much more bothered by their skin disease than by their joint disease. And sometimes it's quite the opposite. And as a clinician, as a treating physician or a practitioner, we, we have to sort of work on that with the patient because, you know, it, as in all other aspects of our care, shared decision-making is critical. So we have to understand what the patient wants. And, and one of the challenges is, you know, what's not controlled and how important is the part that's not controlled? So I, 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 there are a few abstracts at this meeting after I've sort of uh, wound through all this that, that sort of look at this. So there's a couple, uh, 884, for example, um, which looks at the Corona uh, database, the Corona Spa Registry and PSA Registry, 323, which looks at some data from the uh, PARC cohort, the uh, uh, psoriatic arthritis research cohort. Uh, and both of these look at the concept of what elements of disease are left if someone has achieved a target, if you will, uh, by a composite measure. Um, it, it seems that a patient in minimal disease or very low disease activity has the least active disease left in both of these. There's some data in abstract 909 at this meeting from the EXCEED study, which compares uh, adalimumab to secukinumab, um, which shows some of the same things that it, it looks at what's left. Um, those are important elements. The question is, how important are the individual pieces that are left? So for example, if a patient is well controlled in terms of joint disease and still has some skin disease, but is not terribly bothered by that, do we need to push on for more therapy? Do we need to change therapy or can we accept where we are? And is that different? And in my mind, it is from a patient with um, significant joint disease where I worry about long-term damage in a way that I don't worry uh, for skin disease. And so patients who have persistent joint involvement, particularly if I know that they have destructive arthritis, I'm not gonna be as happy leaving them there and leaving them alone. So these are issues we have to confront. I think a lot of abstracts at this meeting have begun to look at that. And there are a lot of abstracts with newer therapies where this is gonna come into play. So 2027 is the data on tildrakizumab, a new IL-23 inhibitor, a number of abstracts, 347, 505, 888, and others on guzelcomab, an IL-23 inhibitor that, was bit, that has been approved. And the question is, are these drugs gonna address the same elements of disease 
that we've treated with IL-17 inhibitors, that we've treated with TNF inhibitors, and that we're looking at treating with JAK inhibitors. There's another IL-17 inhibitor, bimikizumab, an abstract 906 is a phase two study from this drug that targets both IL-17A and IL-17F. Is that gonna change the elements of disease? Um, I don't have the answers to these questions, but I think they're important questions to ask as we move forward in care. Um, and, and they're not trivial because they really impact um, sort of guidance. Um, and whether or not you believe in guidelines and follow guidelines, the kind of guidance that we need on what treatments are going to treat which patients is important for all of us, all of us, even if you don't uh, follow the guidelines strictly. Um, so stay tuned. The answers aren't here. Uh, abstracts at this meeting begin to look at this question. We'll learn more um, going forward, and it's an area we need to continue to look at. Uh, stay tuned to Room Now for more information on ACR Convergence 2020, uh, and I'll see you later. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan from Reading in the United Kingdom, and I'm a consultant rheumatologist reporting here at the ACR 20 full stop. I've been covering and looking at the new treatments in axial spondyloarthritis. And there are two very interesting posters from today, which I'd like to kind of share with you, uh, which describes new treatments in axial spondyloarthritis. And this is with the selective JAK1 inhibitor Upadacitinib, which I'm going to call UPA, uh, and this has kind of taught us about new things about this treatment. Now, the, the data was first presented uh, last year, at the end of last year, published uh, in Lancet with the Select Axis 1 study uh, by Van Heider, which showed that UPA uh, compared to placebo was able to achieve an ASAS 40 or 52% versus 26% in the placebo group. And these two other posters today uh, kind of extends the, the, the data from the, the select one access study. The first is poster number 369, which looked at the issue of pain. Now we know that in patients with excess spondyloarthritis, spinal pain and also peripheral joint pain can be quite a significant factor that can affect their function. In this study, they looked at the aspect of pain and they looked at the groups which first uh, receive UPA and versus placebo as well. They looked at different measures, including patient global assessment and also BASTI. The BASTI, as you know, is the BAF ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score. And then they looked at the various different questions, such as question two and three. And what they showed was that there was as, as, as early as week two in the uh, UPA group, they managed to achieve uh, improvement in the pain levels and also in the patients who switched after a period of placebo for 14 weeks where they switched over to the UPA group, that again, these patients also benefited from the switch to UPA. And this was seen up to week 64, where there was an improvement in their pain at 30, 50, and 70% of improvement on pain compared to baseline. So I think that is very uh, in interesting and also uh, gives us a lot of uh, hope for the future in regards to new treatment for our patients with axial spondyloarthritis. Yeah, the next poster is poster 886, which looks at the aspect of um, the effect of UPA on, on remission scores in patients with axial spondyloarthritis. They use the ASAS score called the ASAS special remission, ASAS-PR, 
and then also looked at how this correlated with disease activity scores. They used the ASTA score. The ASTA score can be um, differentiated into um, low disease activity um, or moderate disease activity or high disease activity. And what they found was in the, in the, in the group where they had UPA from the start uh, and, and the assessment at week 14, 19% of these patients achieve uh, ASAS partial remission. And that's a very high score in terms of uh, improvement compared to baseline. And in the placebo group where they switched over after 14 weeks and they reassessed them again at week uh, 32. And they also found that 33% of these patients again achieve ASAS partial remission. Now the majority of these patients who achieve ASAS PR also achieve very low disease activity uh, or inactive disease scores on their ASTAS. Again, I think this shows us that the benefit of the, uh, the treatment can be on uh, exospondyloarthritis in terms of achieving high scores uh, in terms of partial remission. Now, these two posters today uh, supplement the, uh, the data that we, we heard uh, last year about the effect of UPA. And for us, we are looking for new mechanisms of action in the treatment of uh, exospondyloarthritis. We have obviously biologic drugs, uh, TNF inhibitors, TNF blockers. We have interleukin-17 blockers. So again, this opens up a new area for, for, for study. And obviously, we'll need uh, further studies. We'll need to uh, look at the effect of uh, JAK inhibitors uh, beyond uh, this study. But again, I think this gives us hope in terms of our management of our patients uh, with axial spondyloarthritis. I'm Anthony Chan. I'm uh, reporting from ACR20. Uh, thank you for listening today. And I hope to share with you further news from the, the conference. Thank you very much. Hi again, uh, Michael Pillinger from NYU School of Medicine here talking about gout for room now. So today is Saturday at the ACR convergence meeting and it's been a fairly busy day for gout with a large poster session and several talks. Of course, I've got to choose something to talk about. So what I'd like to highlight here today is a bit of gout drug development. Over the past decade, there had been a lot of drug development in gout, but over the past few years, it seems to have petered off, particularly when it comes to urate lowering therapy. Currently, we're really left with allopurinol as our go-to drug, Fabuzostat for a limited indication, and the spectacularly effective, but not for everyone, peglotticase. And I'll be talking more about peglotticase at an upcoming roundtable discussion. Meanwhile, I wanted to highlight a couple of abstracts about a new uricosuric under development called AR882. AR882 is a potent, selective URAT1 inhibitor and therefore a uricosuric drug. And the company sponsoring it has brought two studies to this meeting. The first one, abstract number 675, is a phase one study by Shen et al. This is a study of healthy subject volunteers. It's a 10-day long treatment study. And like all phase one studies, it's a dose finding study. So here the doses are 25, 50, and 75 milligrams once a day. 30 adults participated and the urate decreased, the serum urate decreased 40, 60 or 65% by dose respectively. So it appeared that the benefit of going from 25 milligrams to 50 milligrams was very significant from 40 to 60%. 
but the benefit of going from 50 to 75 milligrams was less so from 60 to only an additional five, 65% decline. Of course, since this is a uricose uric, the fractional excretion of uric acid increased in the urine. So this study helped establish doses and demonstrate the short-term physiologic potency of AR882 for urate lowering in a non-gout population. What about in a gout population? That brings us to the second study, which is a phase 2A study by Ye et al. This is abstract 690. And in this study, the authors examined a group of patients with gout. They chose the 50 milligram per day dose, the one we talked about uh, in the prior study as maybe the sweet spot, and they administered it with or without either 40 milligrams of febuzostat daily or 300 milligrams of allopurinol daily or against febuzostat or allopurinol alone. The treatment period was uh, one week, but in a three-week crossover study that allowed all patients to get three different regimens. They either got the AR882 um, or they got the xanthine oxidase inhibitor or they got both. There were only 20 patients in this study. 11 patients got febuzostat as the comparator and nine got allopurinol. To get into the study, the patients had to have a serum urate greater than seven, but the average starting urate uh, for all the patients was about nine milligrams per deciliter. So it was quite substantial. In this study, AR882's urate lowering capacity was genuinely impressive. 95% of the patients getting AR882 alone achieved a urate of less than five milligrams per deciliter, which was in this case a 53% reduction. In contrast, only 10% of the allopurinol and 25% of the febuzostat users got to less than five mg per deciliter. The percent of, of subjects achieving a urate of less than six a higher bar, an easier bar to achieve rather, uh, was also markedly greater in the AR8A2 group. In fact, it was e even higher than 95% of the patients reached that. Though not surprisingly, the traditional drugs were also better at hitting this easier target than the five milligrams per deciliter one. The combination of AR8A2 with either of the, the xanthine oxidase inhibitors was even more impressive often getting down to below four milligrams per deciliter or even lower. And AR8A2 was also effective in patients with mild renal disease. So this looks really promising. Now, while the authors correctly affirmed that allopurinol and febuzostat have their limitations, the case against them in this comparison was perhaps a bit overstated. For one thing, the doses of febuzostat and allopurinol used were not the optimal ones. So this comparison does stack the, stack the deck a bit in favor of AR882. We may really want to know how AR882 will stack up against allopurinol 800 milligrams or febuzostat 80 milligrams, their maximal doses. The authors state that allopurinol is only effective in a percentage of patients but the recent nurse-led care study by Michael Doherty's group has taught us that with proper dose titration, allopurinol can be made to work in almost anyone. And the ongoing VA stopgout study led by Jim O'Dell 
is comparing allopurinol and fubuzostat in about 900 patients. And that study should provide us with additional information about just how good these two drugs are at lowering serum urate and reducing flares when properly prescribed according to ACR guidelines. The authors of the current study also point out that the use of fubuzostat is limited by its black box cardiovascular warning. And, and that's true, but it's also true that that warning is controversial. And for more on that, I'd refer you to an editorial by Dr. Arya Abeles and myself in ACR Rheumatology Open in 2019. More importantly, a study to be presented later this week will provide accumulating evidence about Fubuzostat's possible cardiovascular safety. Maybe I'll discuss that issue in a later video. So overall, these very early studies suggest that AR882 is really effective at lowering serum urate and not grossly toxic in a small group of people. Of course, we need to remember that a similar urat one inhibitor that was highly effective, lisinirad, was approved, but only at a low dose and along with a urate-lowering agent because of associated creatinine rises. And that low dose wasn't potent enough to convince rheumatologists to embrace it, so it went off the market. We'll need to see whether AR882 avoids these problems. A new urate-lowering agent with a different profile would be really welcome. Will, AR, will AR882 be that drug? Let's stay tuned for phase 2B. And keep tuning into Room Now for more reports and videos. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm David Liu, rheumatologist from Melbourne, Australia, reporting again for RoomNow.com from ACR 2020, uh, the virtual conference. One of the um, one of the abstracts which has really uh, shaken things up, of course, is about COVID and about COVID antifossilipid antibodies, presented in uh, the plenary session, really addressing a lot about the talk about thrombosis and COVID. There's been a lot of talk in, even in the lay media about this, been series of patients with um, COVID patients with positive antiphospholipid antibodies. And some of these quite severe COVID patients do appear to have a catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome type picture. So uh, what uh, these investigators did, uh, led by uh, Dr. Quo and uh, with Jason in Jason Knight's group, uh, looked at 172 consecutive hospitalized patients and had a look at uh, a series of different antiphospholipid antibodies, conventional ones, non-criteria ones, um, and saw that over half of them have positive antiphospholipid antibodies. Now, the strongest association was actually with anti-PSPT, which is non-criteria antibody, which usually gets picked up as part of the lupus anticoagulant uh, section, but also um, it was notable that anti-cardiolipin and IgM um, also had a, um, a strong association. But more than that, the presence of antiphospholipid antibodies was associated with real functional impairment, um, reduced oxygenation, was associated with increased cow protection levels. And in a disease where notosis is so important, uh, we saw it was associated with increased net formation and, and net release. 
Finally, they took those antiphospholipid antibodies um, from the COVID patients, introduced them to, to mice and formed thrombosis as well. So they're functional, they're definitely functional. So this has got enormous implications. Um, I think every time we think that COVID and rheumatology uh, don't meet, they, they do, and they were increasingly getting that sense. Um, but really, what, um, what is the future as we see potentially another wave of COVID in the Northern Hemisphere? What's this going to mean in terms of antiphospholipid type syndromes in our COVID patients? For more on this and everything else to do with ACI 2020, head along to roomnow.com. Hello, I am Dr. Jonathan Cave from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester here at the ACR Convergence 2020. Well, I'm really in my office at home, having spent the past two and a half days looking at the absolutely fantastic sessions that have been presented virtually by the American College of Rheumatology. I miss the in-person uh, interactions that we have at the annual scientific meeting, but with the ability to zoom in and see other people virtually and watch the presentations from the comfort of my own home, I've been enjoying this meeting and hope that you have too. I'm gonna to focus today on presentation 1445, an abstract presented at the third plenary session by Dr. Vijay Joshua from the Rheumatology Unit at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. He talked about citrulline reactive B cells present in the lungs of patients at risk for and with early untreated rheumatoid arthritis. Interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis seems to be a theme at this meeting with a number of abstracts, posters, and oral presentations about interstitial lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. On Friday, we saw the presentations by Jeffrey Sparks from the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, where he talked about the increased prevalence of interstitial lung disease among older rheumatoid arthritis patients where about 5% of them uh, were found to have interstitial lung disease. He also talked about the fine specificity of anti-citrullinated antibodies to predict interstitial lung disease, especially antibodies against citrullinated fibrillin. Now, the citrulline reactive B cells have been identified in synovial tissue, uh, synovial fluid from patients with rheumatoid arthritis and interstitial lung disease has been noted both in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and also in patients at risk for rheumatoid arthritis. In the studies of the etiology of rheumatoid arthritis or SERA-SERA longitudinal cohort, which is comprised of first degree relatives of probands with rheumatoid arthritis who also have uh, anti-CCP antibodies, they found that there was an increased prevalence of pulmonary abnormalities in seropositive individuals without arthritis, both by spirometry and high-resolution chest CT scanning. They found that airway abnormalities were detected in 76% of autoantibody-positive subjects, but only 33% of autoantibody-negative controls. These included bronchial wall thickening, bronchiectasis, central lobular opacities, and air trapping. These data were published in 2012 by Demorel and colleagues in arthritis and rheumatology. They also uh, identified rheumatoid arthritis-related autoantibodies in the sputum 
of these individuals at risk for rheumatoid arthritis or with early rheumatoid arthritis. They obtained simultaneous serum and sputum samples from 21 healthy controls, 49 at-risk subjects without inflammatory arthritis, 23 of whom were seronegative and 26 seropositive, and then 14 patients with seropositive rheumatoid arthritis of less than one year duration. They tested paired samples for anti-CCP antibodies, rheumatoid factor, and total immunoglobulin G, M, and A. They found at least one autoantibody in the sputum of 39% of the at-risk seronegative subjects, 65% of the at-risk seropositive subjects, and 86% of subjects with early rheumatoid arthritis. The rate of positivity for anti-CCP antibodies and the median number of autoantibodies was higher in sputum than in serum, suggesting that rheumatoid arthritis-related autoantibodies may be generated or sequestered in the lung in at-risk individuals or individuals with early disease. These data were published by Willis and colleagues in Arthritis and Rheumatology in 2013. Now, given that background, the question is, what is producing these anti-citrullinated peptide antibodies in the lungs of patients at risk for or with early untreated rheumatoid arthritis. There have been uh, anti-citrullinated uh, antibody uh, reactive cells identified in the lungs of rheumatoid arthritis patients in ectopic lymphoid structures uh, and in bronchial biopsies of ACPA-positive rheumatoid arthritis patients compared to ACPA-negative rheumatoid arthritis patients. The aim of this study by Dr. Joshua and colleagues was to look for citrulline reactive B cells in the lungs of individuals at risk for and with early untreated rheumatoid arthritis. Now, these citrulline reactive B cells have previously been identified in synovial fluid, but not in bronchalveolar lavage fluid from patients with early untreated rheumatoid arthritis or at risk for the disease. To look for this, they identified four at-risk subjects who fulfilled the uh, 2010 ACR-ULAR uh, criteria, uh, I'm sorry, who did not fulfill the ACR-ULAR criteria, but who had musculoskeletal symptoms and were on no anti-rheumatic drug therapy. They found patients who fulfilled the ACR-ULAR criteria who were either ACPA positive, three individuals, or five individuals who were ACPA negative, all with symptom duration of less than one year. And they performed bronchoscopy on these individuals, bronchalveolar lavage, and obtained cells. They identified, they isolated and sorted the CD19 positive B cells, and then they analyzed the sequence from these individual cells for heavy and light chain variable region, amplifying these, and then transfecting uh, the genes for the heavy chain and light chain into HEK293F cells. Uh, they then screened uh, these uh, cells and they first found that there was a higher proportion of CD19 positive B cells in ACPA positive individuals, both at risk for rheumatoid arthritis and with early rheumatoid arthritis. When they uh, looked for these cells, uh, they found that by identifying cells that expressed immunoglobulin on their surface uh, with mutations uh, at N-glycosylation sites or high variable gene mutations, this selected for ACPA 
cells or cells that were likely to be uh, producing ACPA. And they found that there were two patients at risk for rheumatoid arthritis and three seropositive patients with early untreated rheumatoid arthritis who had B cells that were uh, that had ACPA on their surface. Uh, and they then uh, created uh, monoclonal antibodies or produced monoclonal antibodies uh, from these uh, lymphocytes. And they found that the specificity of these uh, antibodies were for a number of different uh, citrullinated proteins, uh, citrullinated fibrinogen and citrullinated bimentin and citrullinated filigrin. Uh, two of the subjects had B cells that made anti filigrin antibodies. And these are the antibodies that uh, Sparks and colleagues identified as uh, being predictive, perhaps, for interstitial lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They found that these monoclonal anti-citronated peptide antibodies cross-reacted to acetylated and carbamylated antigens, as has been found for ACPAs in patients with established rheumatoid arthritis. They then looked for functional characteristics of these uh, ACPAs, and they activated neutrophils with ionophore and found that several of these uh, ACPAs bound to activated neutrophils, but not to non-activated neutrophils, perhaps contributing to netosis. They also found that by challenging synovial fibroblasts, they were able to induce fibroblast migration with two of the four ACPAs that were produced from these patients' uh, B cells. Uh, they also found that two of the four ACPAs promoted osteoclastogenesis when they incubated the ACPAs with macrophages in the presence of MCSF and rank ligand. They were able to differentiate uh, the macrophages into osteoclasts with ACPAs from two of these patients. So their findings were, for the first time, demonstrating that there were citrulline reactive B cells present in the lungs of early untreated rheumatoid arthritis, as well as patients at risk for developing rheumatoid arthritis. The ACPAs identified in the lung were similar in properties with high variable region mutations and mutations in FAB uh, glycosylation uh, to ACPAs from synovial B cells from patients with established rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, they found that these ACPAs cross-reacted to acetylated and carbamylated antigens and that there were variable functional properties uh, binding to activated neutrophils, uh, promoting fibroblast migration and macrophage differentiation into osteoclasts. So interestingly, B cells are present in patients with early untreated rheumatoid arthritis at risk for developing rheumatoid arthritis, which probably produce the ACPAs that have been identified in sputum and in saliva from these individuals in earlier studies. The specificity of some of these antibodies uh, is for the citrullinated filigrin, which is similar to what Jeff Sparks and colleagues have identified as a risk factor for interstitial lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and there are functional characteristics of these antibodies that may contribute to the pathophysiology of interstitial lung disease uh, with fibroblast migration, neutrophil activation, uh, resulting from these anti-citrullinated antibodies. So 
the story of interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis and at risk for patients for rheumatoid arthritis continues to develop. Uh, it looks as if uh, the lung is the alpha and the omega of rheumatoid arthritis, where the earliest features of rheumatoid arthritis may originate in the lung and interstitial lung disease may be an extra-articular complication in established rheumatoid arthritis, leading to morbidity, uh, cancer, and mortality uh, in some patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So here is uh, a wonderful abstract presented from the Karolinska Institute, number 1445, uh, which demonstrates that the lung is the alpha and omega of rheumatoid arthritis. I'm Jonathan Kay. For more information about this and other abstracts, please join us on Room Now. And I look forward to seeing you again with our rheumatoid arthritis faculty panel tonight, highlighting the various rheumatoid arthritis abstracts from day three, Sunday, November 8th at ACR Convergence 2020. I'm Jonathan Kay.